Listeners, I'm angry. I'm angry about the failure of our political leadership, the unmitigated disaster of climate change, and the risks we're asking our educators and students to take right now. I'm angry and I'm hurt and frustrated and I'm not the only one. I know you're angry and I know our students are angry. Our schools have long been held to the idea of being zones that are or should be entirely free of politics. But how does that work in the real world? Are our students free of politics when they walk through the classroom door? Do they take their anger off when they put on a backpack or turn on their cameras? On this episode of Vermont Ed Reads, we're rejoined by Vermont Principal Elijah Hawks. Hawks has written a book called Schools for the Age of Upheaval, Classrooms that Get Personal, Get Political, and Get to Work. It's a powerful, powerful read, by which I mean that you can read it as a talisman against the notion that educators should stand by and pretend we don't see, hear, and feel politics as it unfolds around our students. You can read it in order to figure out how to address your students' anger and maybe your own. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this is Vermont Ed Reads Let's Chat. Thank you for joining me, Elijah. You were very recently on the podcast at the end of last season, but I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself again. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, Jeannie. My name's Elijah. I'm currently principal at Randolph Union. I've been here nine or 10 years now, and I'm delighted to come back for another year with this fabulous faculty, staff, and community. Um, Grew up in Vermont myself in Moortown, and then uh, left for college and found my way to to, to New York City where I was a teacher and then a school principal in New York City and um, also lived abroad and worked in in schools and school settings in, in West Africa for a couple of years and um, well all of that experience just affirms um, for me the importance of of small community-minded democratic schools and so it's a pleasure to be here at, uh, at Randolph Union and to be talking with uh, like-minded educators uh, like you. Um, Well, I'm super excited to talk about your book, but before we get to that, uh, I like to know what people are reading. What are you reading now? Last time, I think it was The Water Dancer. Oh, yeah, it was The Water Dancer. I'm reading um, a a book of essays, long-form essays I'd never read before by James Baldwin called um, No Name in the Street, and it's written much later than a lot of his other essays, so I'm enjoying reading it. Um, It just a feels like a, a different kind of Baldwin voice to a certain degree, a little bit more meandering and free-flowing, um, but it always comes back to where it wants to go. Um, so it, No Name Street by James Baldwin is what I'm reading. Thank you for that. I haven't read that, so I'm going to have to add that to my list. But I'm also reading essays right now. I'm reading um, um, Ross Gay's The Book of Delights. They're little small essays, and they are so delicious. I highly recommend it. Um, okay, let's talk about your book. There's a lot to talk about in this book, but I'm going to start just with the introduction because you start by talking about anger. And I, I think this might be a time when kids could really feel angry. I, I think my own son is any indication. This is a time where you can feel really angry with society, um, given COVID, given the conditions of right now, given the political situation. And so... Um, You say, we need their anger, and we need it to find its voice. And I don't think of anger as being particularly welcome in schools. So I I wanted to know more about what you meant by this, and maybe even a description of what it looks like. 
I think it, um, I think I, I start to talk a bit more about what it looks like in the get personal and the get political chapters where um, I think, I think you're right that young people today ex experiencing what they are likely to be experiencing, watching the behavior of adults um, behaving in ridiculous and unjust ways, um, seeing the way their society is going, they have a, a right to be angry at the state of the world. Um, they've been born into a world of runaway climate change that is likely to make civilization difficult for them to live in by the time they're in their um, older years and even sooner. They have a right to be angry at the state of the world they've been, they've been given. So uh, a kind of righteous anger, a kind of anger at the state of injustice. And so I think that that anger is something we need and we see it in the streets and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it can force really positive change in our world. So, so in the, in the get political chapter, I talk about the need for, um, ideological dissonance and debate. That is like ideas and ideals that are being debated and, and, and upon which kids can grasp and, and channel their sense of what is unfair and what is not right about the world in political, in political directions. So that it's oriented towards policy change and social change as opposed to directed towards themselves or towards, towards other people in some kind of um, demeaning way towards others or shameful way towards oneself. And so um, the get personal chapter touches upon that as well. I think that um, better again, bet if, if a child is, if a, if a young person is feeling um, wounded or in pain in some way, uh, it's it, uh, uh, children are, 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 are too likely to internalize that as being somehow their own fault. And so it can, it can lead to feelings of shame, um, something that then gets, that then gets closeted. So uh, if, if the world has mistreated them, I, rather than them feel shame about that in some way or feel like lesser than, I'd rather they be upset with the world that has been mistreating them and that they find a way to express uh, who they are, the stories that they've lived, um, and, uh, and that they also have a sense of like uh, how to shape their world for the better. So that, that's something about what I mean by we need we need their anger. I feel like part of what you're saying is that we need to harness their anger. And part of doing that is giving it boundaries or using a phrase our mutual friend, Mike Martin uses is um, libits as liberators, like sort of giving it some structure um, and both giving it a sense of something to rebel against and something to, to sort of some values and morals and cultural traditions and beliefs that, that ground it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. To be both grounded and to have something to resist. Um, I, think, I think that that's part of why it's important for the adults in a young person's world to have strongly held beliefs, um, whether wh wh wherever those adults might be. I think it's important not to be, you know, not, not to avoid complexities and not to be a simplistic black and white thinker, but to have uh, a strongly held ideals. And, uh, and to express those in no uncertain terms, um, as a lot of the writers that I quote throughout the book do when they're talking to young people, so that they have something to either say, yep, that resonates with me, and there's a model that I can follow, or no, that doesn't resonate with me, that's a path that I'm not going to take. Um, if adults are too wishy-washy, or too ambivalent, or too... Um, juvenile ourselves and our own pursuits and pleasure seeking, young people won't get that kind of um, mature confrontation with ideals and tradition um, that they need, again, like you said, either to, uh, to, to, to have something to adhere to or something to reject. 
So uh, one of the things I'm going to ask you, because I think what you're asking us in that chapter about getting political in particular is to show up as our moral selves, right? To show up um, and not shy away from politics and from conflict. And um, I, I guess what I would ask is, what do you say to folks who feel that politics doesn't belong in schools or that my morals as an educator don't, don't belong in schools? I think that... I think everything is political, really. I think that um, I think that our, our 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 lives are shaped by common circumstances, and those common circumstances, whether it be the the ninety degree temperature in uh, in in September, um, that causes us to issue heat warnings such that we can't hold soccer games, or whether it be the economic um, divide between the haves and the have-nots. Um, whether it be the quality of the water in our streams, whether it be who has money for lunch or not. I mean, I don't know, like what is not political? What is not in some way shaped um, either in, in, in distant or very immediate ways by, um, by, by, by policy context and by people in, in, in positional power? Um, so I, I would reject the notion that like politics doesn't have its place in, in the classroom. because I think that whatever we might be talking about has connections to policy context. And so when I say get political, I mean, put things in a policy context. Think about who has power to shape the world and, uh, and, and claim some of that power for yourself and know, and, 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 and know how the world works in, the, in that regard. Um, that's what I mean by, by get political. Now, it, there's, there's a book that I cite in that chapter called The Political Classroom, which is, which is more of an academic text by some professors who are, who are really interested in knowing how politics in the classroom engages young people. And of course, they find that uh, classrooms where people are debating controversial and political issues are very engaging for kids. But what these researchers also found is that the classroom can be very engaging for kids across the political spectrum if the teacher is um, if the teacher withholds their own personal political beliefs that those classrooms can also be deeply engaging for kids across the political spectrum if the teacher is more transparent about their personal political stance um, so a lot of it is about the tact of the teacher in terms of how you share who you are as a person outside the walls of the school. Um, I choose to be pretty public through my through my through my writing um, and in other ways about where I stand on the political spectrum, I suppose, and I think that over time that actually serves me well in working with a diverse community of people because there's no there there uh, how to say this um, I think it would be worse if people thought that I had a hidden agenda by which I was trying to manipulate their child whereas if I don't know if I'm having a conversation with parents and I think, yes, I think healthcare is a human right. I think that there should be universal healthcare for all. I can be transparent with you about that. Um, at the same time, I can support students having debates in the classroom about it in really thoughtful in really thoughtful ways that are pedagogically sound. But you as a kid and you as a family, you don't have to be like wondering what my agenda is. You can like, you can be um, empowered to disagree with me in really articulate ways. Um, so I, really, I, I don't know. I really appreciate that stance and that way of holding yourself in the world and being transparent about what you believe and being open to other people's ideas and feedback. And it, it makes me think a lot about, um, 
I mean, I'm not the first person to say this by any means, but this idea that when we, when we think we're being neutral, we're actually political on the side of the status quo. And so when we're refusing to discuss these um, tricky issues, whether it's um, climate change or uh, immigration or um, any of these things that are sort of larger discussions in our culture, we're saying we're sending the message that it doesn't matter, that we don't have much say in it, and that um, the status quo is just fine. Yeah, I think that's true. And the status quo is an unmitigated disaster for like much of the world's population right now. I was with a, a group of teachers and other educators in a certification program, and they were they they had read the book over the summer as part of their their program, and and, and many of them chose to to focus in on the very question that we're talking about right now. And I think are are we're really wrestling with what do I do with my own beliefs as a teacher in in the classroom? Um, and we got into a conversation about well, where like how, are you always going to perpetuate the idea that there are two or three or four equal sides to every every political topic like where would you not do that you know like if when it comes to uh when it comes to nazism are there two equal sides to that to that political stance well no okay so you're going to draw a line there and you're going to take a stand okay well that's good what about climate change are you going to say there are two equal sides to climate change you know right like right now you you know teacher school principal like are you going to say that there are two equal sides to that and you want both sides to be heard and want young people to make up their minds? No, you're gonna take a stand on that? Okay, good. Like, I don't know, where do you draw the line in, in, in where something is really, really important to the world and, and you're gonna sort of like hide what you feel is right? Um, I feel the same way about hate speech, right? Like, or homophobia. There's a clear line for me. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that said, I don't think that, that a teacher's being transparent about what they what they what they feel is right for their world and for the children in it precludes them from enabling children to really become evidence-based critical thinkers who are um, accepting this and discarding that as they make up their own as they make up their own worldview. In fact, how how elsewise can they do it? They need adults in their lives who are presenting them with strongly held evidence-based beliefs that are also grounded in personal experience. They need to see that and then they need to again like be able to decide if that's something that they are going to accept in their world as as true or a path forward or or not and young people will they will they will they will make up their they will make up their own minds much of your book it seems to me is about process is about um this is not written down i'm thinking this as i talk um is about um just that, that me thinking back on my own life about how I came to believe what I believe, where my ethics and morality sort of formed, and how do we create conditions for kids to develop their own sense of self in that way, develop their own beliefs and identity. You talk a good bit about identity in your book, and, um, and give them space to do that instead of just assuming that they can make sense of the world. Yes, right. Um, I don't know if this is quite an, you know, the appropriate analogy or not, but like I often think about like when I've I've needed to acquire knowledge and skills and haven't had it and intentionally seek it. And I think often about how when I moved back to Vermont, 
Um, when I grew up, I never used a chainsaw very much. I mean, my dad did and other people did, but I never, I never did. And so when I grew back to Vermont and became a home homeowner, there was some work to be done around the place with, with a chainsaw. And I didn't, you know, I had friends who knew how to use chainsaws very capably. Um, so I went, I went to my buddy, Chris, I was like, Chris, like, can you show me how to cut down a tree in a safe way? Like I very intentionally went to someone who felt like they knew what they were doing to mentor me into that skill set. And one of the examples you use early on in the book is about a student who, like your chainsaw, has an interest, but her interest is depression because she's experiencing it, because she's in pain because of her own depression. And she does a project, she makes a video about um, depression. And so in a way, the educator she's working with is giving her the skills she needs, is mentoring her in the skills she needs to talk about, to voice this thing that's important to her. And... Um, and I love that example because I think that's a really powerful way to capitalize on interests. It's a really um, great example of a flexible pathway. But uh, I'm going to just poke at it a little bit because I can imagine that the educators, some of the educators that I know or work with might say, yeah, but how does that help them meet curricular goals or question the validity of that kind of personal work? And so I'm going to put that question to you. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I can appreciate that, that question. Although I think that, um, I think that any documentary filmmaker might very well push back and suggest that the skill sets that I have in order to make this film, um, certainly fall into the realm of the language arts, certainly fall into the realm of digital literacy. And depending on my subject area may very well dovetail with science standards or social studies standards or psychology, um, so it's, it's, it's not hard, I don't think, to connect a project like that to our graduation standards. Um, it may be hard to view it as test prep for a, an SBAC you know, test in mathematics. Um, but then again, a child who feels more self-assured and confident in herself may very well do better on a standardized test than the girl who walks into school with her you know, bangs down over her face and a, and a lack of a sense of pride and a, and a lack of a sense of her own, her own voice and place in the world. Um, cause I, cause through that, through that, through that project, um, this, 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 this girl was telling a story that she'd never, she'd never before told. And I, 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 I kind of believe that that story, almost every story wants and needs to be told on its own terms when the time is right. Um, and so that's part of what, that's part of the subtlety of all of this is that how do we, how do we help young people find that time? And, and that time may never arrive in the, in the, in the years that they're with us. You know, I was, I was just um, in a professional development session with the Vermont Principals Academy over the, over the summer. And I offered a poem that I thought we could read because we were talking about um, Vermont and we were talking about race and racism. And we were talking about, people being in our classes and our colleagues. And the poem is called Every Traveler Has One Vermont Poem by Audre Lorde. And um, in, that, in that poem, um, the speaker of the poem, who one can presume is, is Audre Lorde or, or an African-American person like her is in Vermont. And she's called the N-word by a young boy on a tractor. And uh, one of the participants in the session o over the summer said that there's a, a story that she carries with her that 
she feels sometimes the need to tell the people she's working with in schools, but she hasn't told it yet. But seeing something of her story in that poem was, was, uh, was important and was humanizing. And it actually, it, it, it brought her a step closer, perhaps, to sharing some of the story that she feels the need to, to tell. So in that summer professional development session, she didn't share her story but she acknowledged that there was a story inside her and she saw something of that story in the literature. And so she and that story are working it out. And at some point when the time is right, that story will be told and, um, and the world will see her and she'll see herself in the world in a new way, in a perhaps even more complete way. I can't love the idea of story, sharing story and the power of story enough. That's, I, I, and I, I think that that really led me to one of my favorite quotes from your book is on page 12 and it says, it's about a specific student, but it could be about any student. Better we help her find the words that they be spoken in safe and supportive spaces with adults who care to listen. Better they be written in ink than in blood. And I, I guess the question I have is um, how? <laughs> Both how to, and I think you give many examples in this book of how to help young people find the words over and over again um, in your examples of Jeremiah and other students, right? This young woman. Um, but I guess, I guess the how I'm really interested in is how do we in the limited time we have in schools teach or encourage adults to care to listen? I think schools often feel really time starved and it can be really easy. I can think of myself countless times not having time to really hear a student that needed heard. And that haunts me a little bit. So I guess that's the question I'm putting to you is how, how do we make that a reality? Well, gosh, I, I don't, I, it feels to me like there's ample time. Um, so maybe it's more the question of how do we, how do we work with adults such that they care to listen and create the space? Um, because if I've, if I've got a typical high school class and I've got students with me two, more than 200 minutes a week for 10 months of the year, that's some time. Um, so maybe it's more about how, how do we as adults ready ourselves to, to create the spaces where those stories can be told and heard. And I think that that's, that may be the real, that may be the real key to this, um, to unlocking these spaces in schools, which is that a lot of adults um, aren't comfortable with the pain that young people carry and that they even themselves may carry. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of teachers, a lot of English teachers may be very comfortable talking about, talking about Faulkner, but not talking about themselves. A lot of math teachers may be comfortable um, teaching, teaching algebra, but not reflecting on their own racism, right? Like there's, there, we need to create spaces for the adults in the building to have those conversations and do that kind of work. And then that helps us all learn how to personalize our interactions and, and see 
the world we live in, 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 in policy and political context. We have to practice it as, as adults. So that's some of the work that, um, that we've been trying to do at Randolph Union, which is like to very regularly in our, fa in our precious faculty meeting time to sit in small circles of five to eight people and do some of this work um, together where the listening is practiced, where people start to get a sense of how meaningful it is to feel heard um, and to have opportunities, not so invitation, not coercion, but have to have opportunities to share a story or to see that story reflected in what something, what's, what someone else has shared. Um, so I think creating adults who are ready to listen means practicing and doing that work as, as the adults in the school. I couldn't agree more with the idea that listening is a skill we have to develop that it's not something we're really, um, that comes really easily to us, especially in this current uh, moment, in this current culture. And that to me feels really connected with another quote that I love that reminded me of Carla Shalaby's Troublemakers. Um, uh, and that is, um, it's specifically about Jeremiah, one of the students you write about. And it says, love, any other response seems inadequate. What else can be said other than love him? And listening feels like a real act of love. And so part of what you're saying to me about relationships and circles and the ample time is about prioritizing love, prioritizing knowing students well. And um, that's another place where I can hear folks, maybe folks that might say, focus on the three R's, you know, the reading, writing, and arithmetic, say that's not the job of education. And so what do you say to that? For me, I say uh, learning is social and that relationships are key. Um, but that, that L word, the love word, I think can be challenging for folks. Mm-hmm. Well, what I, I guess what I would say is, um, I guess I would say to someone who's skeptical about the focus on relationship building, I would say, give it a second. Give, it, give us a little bit here because, you know, like our advisory program at Randolph Union, we, we, we based it on some of the work of U32 in past years where they have a, you know, a six year, at least in the past they did a, um, a six-year relationship between an advisor and students and families. So when we first launched this kind of advisory program at Randolph Union a bunch of years ago, there was a great deal of skepticism. But now, it's one of the most important questions that new parents to our school want to know is, who's going to be my kid's advisor? Because they're going to be with them for so long. And they, they know from their neighbors and from their siblings how important that relationship is over years and years and years and years and years. Um, or in a classroom, if if you give me a semester to do really powerful work with young people and then let that work be shared, watch that girl's film on teenage depression, the work and the students will speak for themselves. It will be of such undeniable power and relevance. There's young people speaking about who they are that it just, won't, it just can't be questioned. Yeah. I feel like that's um, part and part. Oh, I'm sorry, just to, be, just to be really clear, like, we got to share that student work. Don't just keep it in the classroom. So if we're doing really meaningful work with young people, again, wh whether it's with their names attached or even anonymously, share the powerful stories that we're, that, we're, that we're hearing and that students are writing because the power of those stories will speak for themselves. And every parent that's out there and every neighbor and community member and grandpa and grandpa, they, what they want most of all is to see and hear 
the young people in their lives and to know them as whole people. And um, so the, the work will speak for itself. Sometimes it's just a matter of finding the time to, to sh- and the means to share it. So I have two thoughts about that. And one is, um, I think that exhibition of student work is really crucial as um, an antidote to like judging schools by test scores alone, because test scores give you such a narrow, small, little biased, I'll say, (laughs) notion of what a school, what's happening in a school. Um, But student work, it tells more of a story coming back to story again and student stories. And one of the things that I really saw in your book was a kind of listening to students and not just what they say and not just what they write, but listening to how they hold their bodies and um, the work they're producing and the work they're not producing and like this kind of deep, full listening to kids. And, um, and that reminded me a lot of Act 77 and PLPs or personalization, right? And that we have to know kids really well in order to create flexible pathways that matter for them, right? And that this kind of work that you're talking about is part and parcel of that work. And I, I guess um, uh, I'm really playing devil's advocate. And I'm going to quote the fake equity blog that I really love <laughs> where they say the devil has enough advocates, but I'm going to do it anyway, which is, so if I've got 15 or 20 students in my classroom, if I'm a middle school teacher, or if I teach 50 or 60 students a day, how do I operationalize that kind of deep listening? How do I not leave some kids out? How do I not l- just listen to the loud kids? I think, and how, yeah, the loud kids and how do you, how do you help the students who, who don't want to speak feel comfortable speaking? How do you create a climate where, because all of that takes time too. Um, so, I, I mean, there's, there's some discussion of that kind of pedagogy in, in the book. Um, of course, it's really important for the classroom teacher to establish a climate of, of trust um, where the norms whether they're crafted with the young people or not, that the norms are norms that the adults are gonna uphold and make sure that it feels like a safe space where there is a kind of like boundedness and containedness that the adult is helping to to create so a person can feel safe um, sharing their story. I think there should be opportunities for for work to be shared um, anonymously as well as with your name attached. I think there's nothing more fun than reading a child's work to them because young people eat you know like there may be students who can write the most wonderful thing but they are afraid to read it themselves to their peers so the teacher could read that work to their peers or you bring in some older students to read the work or you bring in some of your drama students who want nothing more than to read in a performative way and bring the child's text to life so there's there are ways to create a very celebratory culture that values the questions kids ask and the stories that they tell and finds ways to share what young people contribute, whether it's anonymously or not. Sometimes I'll walk down the seventh grade hallway here and there'll just be 60 or 80 very short poems on the wall, no names attached, but every student's voice is, is out there. Um, And then I think also, you know, over time there can be discussion forums and other, uh, like, like Socratic seminar I'm thinking of, but, but discussion forums that are really carefully scaffolded over time so that students, again, feel, feel supported by the teacher and by the work they've done in sharing their voice and sharing their opinions. Um, so it's, it's certainly possible. And we're blessed to be here in Vermont where there's so many different models of that and so many teachers who are willing to, 
to, sh to share their work. And we have the Roland Foundation, this like network of educators who are ready to share their pedagogy at any time and the Tarrant Institute. So I think the re if a teacher wants to do this kind of work, the resources are out there to help them do it. Um, that said, it's also important that the administrators of the school are willing to support it. And so that's, that's, that's key as well. And, and uh, it's important that teachers hear from their administrators that we've got your back if you're going to be doing work that has personal and political um, intersections. Um, as long as we're doing the carefully, like work carefully, I've got, I've got your back, I'll support you and we can, we can do this well together. You're right, uh, the Get Personal chapter gets really specific and I really love the ideas there about building trust in the classroom and how to go about that. Um, modeling that vulnerability, being yourself in the classroom, being willing to share your story, to be um, personal yourself. And, um, and I really love this idea of it's being an invitation rather than something that's coercive or compliance oriented, right? That, that the engagement is an invitation and that kids get to, um, to join in or to, to put a toe in when they're ready and ease in. Um, but the last, uh, the last thing in that um, chapter is about validation and praise. And um, I, I, it didn't strike me the same way. I, I questioned it a little bit. As somebody who actually is, is really um, done a lot of work giving praise and validation to students in the past, but a, about a year or so ago, I listened to um, a Hidden Brain episode about clicker training and, you know, just giving feedback uh, that's non-judgmental. And it really struck me that um, as, a, as a student myself, I was so wrapped up in the validation and praise from others that I didn't actually ever know when I was doing good work myself. And so I guess I'm just going to question that a little bit about the role of validation and praise. And say, and say more about, about, can you, would you mind, Jeannie, about your own, like you said, as a, as a young person, it sounds like you were, you were more focused on the external validation and didn't have your own sense of like when you were doing something worthy of that praise or not, or can you say more about that a bit? Well, I think we're all attention seeking, right? And some kids, when they don't get attention, um, go about it in a negative way, right? We see that in classrooms all the time. And, but for a kid like me, who was very compliant and a good little girl, <laughs> uh, I often went about getting attention by, um, trying to do my best work, not because it was my best work, but because I wanted the teacher to give me that star, that gold star, those mm -hmm. kind words, right? And I won't even just say as a young person, I think even as an adult, I, it's taken a lot of work for me to value my own growth and my own work internally, as opposed to looking externally for folks to approve of it. And so mm -hmm. I'm just curious about that, right? And so I loved all of this other stuff about it's yeah. invitational. And then I got to that um, validation and praise, and I was like, hmm, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. Well, it's been a while since I wrote it, and I don't have it here in front of me, but I, I think what I'm thinking is that uh, if, if this is the Get Personal chapter where we're inviting people to, um, to take what is sometimes a risk, that um, – that that should be appreciated. Um, that when someone is taking a risk, that that should be appreciated. Uh, and um, yeah, I guess that's what I was thinking. Like, not it's certainly not healthy to create a a culture in the classroom where everyone's motivation is dependent upon um, some external rather than intrinsic um, motivation. That's certainly that's certainly not healthy. 
Um, that said, I feel like positive feedback, you know, goes a long way towards motivation and as well as sort of modeling. Like if, if a student presents something that has, you know, like, you know, several strengths about it and several weaknesses, if, and sometimes if we, if, especially early on in the class, like just accentuate the positive because that shows the rest of the class what kind of work is worth doing. You don't even have to say like, I wouldn't do that. There can be a strong emphasis on the positive, especially at first, and you can you can help create the criteria of uh, that you're seeking to to attain by emphasizing the positive aspects of what of what people are doing. I don't know. I just feel like a lot of positivity enthusiasm goes a long way as a as a as a teacher, um, and is part of loving the kids. And you know, again, like just yeah, just a kind of an abundance of care and and, and, uh, and validation, but, but kids, kids know when something is empty, right? Like you can't be insincere, like that will be a problem. You can't, you can't just throw fluff out there. You can't praise someone for asking a question when they didn't actually ask a question, you know, you gotta be a careful listener and you have to be sincere. Um, and you also have to be balanced and, 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 and share the, share the love with, with everybody. But, um, well, that makes me think when I got to page 132, um, which is in the Get Meta section, you talk about um, a strategy that Alex Chevron Vanette uses, uh, in, uses in her trauma-informed teacher toolkit, and that's this connect before you correct. And that positivity really rings true there for me about being saying, and this is about behavior, like, I can see you have your head on the desk, a question can follow, are you feeling tired or hungry? instead of just saying, get your head off the desk. Um, and I'm thinking about work and about praise, like, oh, I can see, especially at a proficiency-based system, I can see where you demonstrated this. Might your next step be to, so it's constructive. Um, mm -hmm. That can really work for me. <laughs> I think it was just the words validation and praise that um, yeah. brought back my own experience a little bit. So I can really appreciate that. Thank you for um, going deeper on that. Yeah, sure, I appreciate your question. Um, yeah. Okay. I am a huge fan. So I'm going to move along to the get to work chapter. I'm a really big fan of the get to work chapter. I've actually written a little bit about this for a school librarian audience about doing, I, I think I called it, um, work that is real. And, um, and I think young people, young, young adolescents, uh, young adults, but also little people can really do real work that's relevant and meaningful and engaging to them. And we see that in action right now, right? Like the Winooski um, Students uh, um, for Anti-Racist Education, I'm not sure if that's their exact title, but have just made huge changes in the Winooski School District based on their act activism. And that's work that's real, right? And I think about... Um, Oh, gosh, there's so many examples of, of Greta Thunberg involved in her advocacy around climate change. Um, uh, I think about kids making and building things, inventing things, right? And so there's so many ways that work could be more meaningful and not an empty exercise. Mm -hmm. And what power um, that has for students, um, you know, getting engaged, because there's nothing, like I just think of myself, there's nothing more disengaging than a worksheet, right? Right here, 
right here in front of me. I have a HIPAA form for my son. And I, like my, I've written on the back of it because that's how much I want to fill out this form, right? Or, or how much I put off taxes every tax season because it, um, while it has real repercussions, it's like filling out a worksheet in a lot of ways. And um, I think I'm conditioned to disdain that, right? And so anytime we can get kids out and um, doing the real work of testing water quality in streams or um, developing prototypes to solve a real problem feels really powerful to me. I wondered if you had any examples um, from the book that you'd like to share with our listeners. Or from Randolph Union. Yeah, um, in terms of the in terms of the get to work modality. Yeah, I think that. Um, well, let's see. One example that I talk about in the book, which is from from Randolph Union from a couple of years ago, was uh, a, a local community center wanted needed a, a local community organization, Economic Development Corporation needed a place for their their board meeting or their shareholder meeting or some large annual meeting. And they asked if they could use the school. And I said, well, yeah, you can use the school, but how can the young people help you organize and, and pull off the event? Um, because there's a lot of work that we could do in having you here that we could, that we could learn from. So the students at the tech center helped make the food for the evening and the students from some of the project-based learning classes that we had helped provide some of the content for the evening. Um, it's just a matter of like looking for any opportunity to put young people to work doing the, doing the tasks that the community needs doing. Um, we have a director of career and workforce development here at the school. That's a position that we intentionally created so that teachers could be supported in doing this sort of thing. And um, some of the work is, has been on hold the past six months, of course, because of the, because of the pandemic and some of those limitations, but um, there are some wonderful projects that Ken has in the work um, has in the works in terms of monitoring the local local um, river and waterways and the and the watershed that we we're a part of. Um, there's just no reason other than the the walls of the school and a, a, a lack of exposure to professionals outside of our own profession. There's no reason to not do work that the community needs doing. You know, I, I think it's it's a it's a problem, and we should look to reform teacher preparation in this regard. It's a it's a problem that I could be um, a student at Harwood Union High School who really liked and did well in his English classes, and then go off to college and university and really like and do well in my English classes, and then go and become an English teacher and replicate what I did in my English classes, and have no contact with any professional other than teachers. And that can be the same for science and that can be the same for math and that can be the same for almost anything. You can move right from school through school back into school. And I didn't ever work at a newspaper. I didn't ever write copy for an advertising agency. I didn't ever, you know, write screenplays. I didn't like, I didn't do any of the work applying language and literature in the realms of professional life outside of school. That's, I mean, that's a problem. We need our teachers to be comfortable we need our science teachers to be comfortable talking to engineers. We need our English teachers comfortable in the offices of the local newspaper. And we need to build those relationships if they're not already there. Because once those relationships are there, um, people will start asking the school to be engaged and to do some of the work that the community needs, needs doing. Yeah, I really love that. And I love 
pulling in community partners and asking them what work needs doing and how can our students do it. And I'm also thinking about uh, how much our core um, classes and teachers could learn from um, tech centers and wood shop teachers. And um, I just think about how much energy goes into the school production, the play, the school play or the school musical and how excited kids get and, and how that's this um, high stakes performance. And what could the rest of us learn from the drama teacher who puts that on? And um, I think too often those things are sort of shunted to the side and treated like they're not the core or they're not the, even that word I used, those core subjects, because that's so often a word used in schools. Um, sort of denotes like the other things are less important. And yet I think we could learn so much about um, how to make our classes more relevant and meaningful and engaging from those disciplines because they do real work. I'm, I still have the lamp I made in woodshop in middle school all these years later. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I'm hearing from you a little bit about how to pull that kind of um, mentality or that kind of um, disposition towards uh, teaching into all of our subjects. Yeah. And, and I think that sometimes it, maybe it can be helpful to think about how can we, how can we, it's not always about reaching out into the community. It can also be about just doing the work that the school needs doing. So for instance, one of the things that's worked well here at, at Randolph is to take what used to be an after-school endeavor and a kind of club activity that is um, the, the world language students going abroad, you know, in their fourth or fifth year of study, going to Spain or Morocco or France or wherever. That used to be an after-school um, activity. So we pulled it down into this, the school day and so made it a teacher's a prep or responsibility and enrolled students who wanted to be there in the class. And of course, there was also an after-school component for the students who couldn't be in the class. But by making it a class, it could become so much more than um, students, students, um, students raising their money or asking their families for money so that they, can, they, could, they could go on a pre-planned trip abroad. All of a sudden, the students, in partnership with Planting Hope from Montpelier, which other Vermont schools also know, an organization that does work in schools in Nicaragua, the students can be co-planning their own experience, their own travel to Nicaragua. They can be developing their own materials that they're going to then use when they're in the schools um, in, that, in that country. They can be writing the grants themselves to the foundations to raise the money to support their trip so that any kid can go regardless of their financial backing. They can be writing emails to airlines and, and picking up the phone with travel agents and learning these real world skills by doing work that they that the school needs to have done. Um, so sometimes it's about opening up the space in our classes to just do the stuff that the school needs doing. It reminds me of um, Peter Stratman, one of my fellow Roland fellows from my co cohort does this thing called Cabot Leads, where every middle school kid gets a job in or out of the school. So some kids are working as um, assistants in the PE class or as um, mentor readers with kindergartners, but other and or in the cafeteria, right, uh, helping with food prep. But some kids are going out into farms and helping with um, 
the milking or, or with the goats. I think there are goats involved in one of them. <laughs> and, um, but I don't know the specifics of what they're doing with the goats. Um, and so it, it's sort of, and it, and so I interviewed a bunch of kids from Cabot about their experience and it's really powerful that for them because it's interest based, they're interested in it and they feel like they're doing something worthwhile. That it's not just something I'm going to turn into my teacher and it becomes a grade, which is really like abstract, right? And, um, and I don't know, for me, that mattered what my teacher saw. That really mattered to me. But I watched my son and he was like, I don't care. It's just one person. I'm fine with who I am, you know? And I was like, ah, <laughs> I both love that about you. And it's so frustrating. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, they're doing work that they're interested in and it's worthwhile. And I think one of the things that I like to encourage my colleagues and myself to do is in addition to thinking about what I'm interested in, think about what the community and what I and what my family need. I think that there can be a real deep level of meaningfulness and sense of worth if we're tapping into a community need or a personal need um, or a family need um, and doing the work that needs to be to be done. Um, because I think sometimes when we just ask young people what they're interested in, of course, that can lead in powerful directions. If I'm just interested in something, it might be slightly more superficial. Uh, I'm not saying it necessarily is. Um, but I think as a, as a, as the first point of departure, thinking about our individual and collective needs is a really, really powerful way to start the work of getting to, of getting to work. Well, and I think that the research, um, the, the newer research points out that people are happier not when they're pursuing a passion, but when their life feels purposeful. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, know, I didn't know about that research. Right, like having a sense of purpose, feeling like you're making a difference in some way, that you're meeting a purpose. And that to me is about com need, community need, um, is way more um, rewarding for folks than just per pursuing an interest or a passion, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think if you're also, if you're talking about needs as your point of departure, that can neutralize some of the knee-jerk reactions to anything that is political. Uh, or, or that, because if you're focused on, like there are hungry people in our community, that's obviously a political concern. Um, but if your point of departure is focusing, focusing on that needs, then you're gonna, you're gonna if, if the teacher is courageous enough, you're gonna get yourself to the policy context of that hunger. Um, so anyway, focusing on needs is a way to get to the personal and, and the political in ways that are, you know, how can you, how can you object to that? Of course, we're talking about something political. We have people who are homeless in our community. That's a political concern. It's all interwoven. It makes me think too, that if you're doing that well, then you're not just um, sort of raising money, like that you're, when you get to that, what you call the political context, right? They're the policy context. You're moving past just the savior mentality or quick fix mentality because you're actually having to understand the real issue. Because I get really nervous sometimes when I'm working with a school and they're like, oh, like, uh, um, let's all raise money for uh, a well in some other place, right? And so when I did some work around the sustainable development goals with the district last year, um, I really felt like we needed water issues happen in Vermont too, right? Like that we have water quality issues here. It's not just about um, uh, places where mostly black and brown people live, which I think ends up feeding into this um, White, white savior mentality. And so it was really important to me that we talk about hunger here and not just elsewhere, that we talk about um, 
uh, uh, education quality issues here and not just in other countries. And so to me, what you're getting at is, um, is a more is more challenging curriculum that asks us to get underneath of it and not just throw a band-aid on it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And that, that's part of why I advocate for a shift in terminology from service to citizenship, to think less about serving others and to think more about my rights and obligations as a citizen in the society to which we all belong. And I think that one, of course, one can be a global citizen, but where do you really practice and build the muscle? of helping others in a way that like you're held accountable as well. You don't, it's not, it can only happen in close proximity at first. You really need to see the impact of your actions, the mistakes that you make, how those mistakes reverberate among the people that you're working with. Um, because you can, you can raise, uh, you can, you can do, you can, you can contribute a lot to some place far away, but you really can't know how your care package landed and whether it felt caring but you can closer to home. You, and so if we, we build our citizenship muscles and sensibilities in our own communities first and, and build outward, global citizenship can come. Um, but I agree with you, we need to also be sensitive to the needs right here at home where we can really start to feel um, our privilege if we have it, our power, um, and of course we have it, um, if, we, if we organize and work together collectively. Yeah. I love that. I love that too, because um, I guess I'm thinking, I've been thinking a lot about the word reciprocity and like the give and take. And um, one of the things that um, I've, I've talked about in other episodes is like who gets to serve. And sometimes we only let, you know, we only let the gifted kids or we only let, right. And so like, how do we make sure? Cause everybody wants to have impact, right? Like everybody wants to be engaged in that way. That's like a human need is to be connected and to be helpful to others. Um, and your book is a lot about that. Like how do we create conditions so that kids get to, to, um, to get to have that need met and not just sort of be alienated from themselves and their communities and their cultures and their schools. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. Uh, the last chapter before you write a lovely letter to teachers is about getting, um, reflective and metacognitive and, um, uh, it makes a great case for me about PLPs or portfolios or places that we can capture those reflections. And so I really, I don't really have a question about that. Just deep appreciation for the, um, the resources and the perspectives you share and the strategies you share in that section. And um, so it's a chapter I'm definitely going to be using um, with the teachers with whom I work. Um, any thoughts or anything you'd like to add or any snapshots of that chapter you'd like to add for our listeners? Yeah, I talk, I talk a little bit about the, um, the, student, the student portfolio presentations, or mm -hmm. effectively, it's like a personal learning plan or personal learning portfolio at the end of eighth grade, the end of 10th grade, 12th grade. It can happen, you know, at any grade level, but um, it is, it, we, we do them at the end of the year here at Randolph Union. It's like a huge scheduling nightmare. It's worse than scheduling exams. It's really hard to do it well because we want two kids to be presenting to their advisor as well as their a past teacher and a future teacher. And so it's hard to put those panels together, but it is so healing. It is so important for educators to just sit and listen to young people talk about who they are as people and as learners. 
So it's, it's one of those ways that we create like really meaningful um, academic and personal rites of passage in a school. And it means a lot to the students because of course they're building their vocabulary and their, and their sense of and their sense of self and where they have struggles and, and they start to learn how to ask for help and where they have strengths so they can learn how to apply those strengths. Um, it's really good for young people. It's also really good, really good for educators, especially if it's like, oh, I'm going to get to teach that kid next year or, oh, I worked with that child last year and look how far they've come. It can be such a healing ritual and the stakes feel really high but in a, in a, in a, in a, like a traditional bureaucratic accountability sense, the stakes are very low. It's not an exam. Yeah, you have to do it, but really does your promotion to the next grade level depend on it? No, not really, but it feels really high stakes to everybody because people are sharing of themselves and it's public speaking in your own community um, where you feel accountable and where you have those relationships. So I think it's just, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's well worth the effort to have those personal learning journeys shared in person. So this is not a website. Like there can be a website. There can be a website. In fact, the website can be a wonderful part of the presentation, but it's an in-person conversation. It lasts maybe 40 minutes or longer and it's really well worth the time. Yeah, I have um, the Compass School is down where I used to live, and um, I spent some time at Compass School with students being on their panels for their their senior portfolios. And um, oh, I hardly knew these students, and I had tears in my eyes. And it was such a beautiful process to watch them go through that. And it reminds me again of um, two things that we talked about earlier. One is exhibition, right? Like as community members to be able to come in because they always have community members on their panels too and see the impact of school on this kid. And then two, like the power of those stories. We're coming back to the young person's story and their developing story, their developing narrative of themselves and deep listening to that. And so I really appreciate how we've come full circle in this conversation and really thinking about, um, about um, that quote from the very beginning, which I'm going to read again, which was, uh, better we help her find the words that they be spoken in safe and supportive spaces with adults who care to listen. I love that. Elijah, thank you so much for this book. I'm really grateful that it exists in the world and that I'm going to get to use it uh, with teachers that I work with. And, um, and thank you for talking to me about it. I really appreciate it. I'm very grateful for the conversation. Thank you, Jeannie. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Elijah Hawks for appearing on the show and talking with me about School for the Age of Upheaval. If you're looking for a copy of School for the Age of Upheaval, check with your local library. A big shout out to our audio engineer and producer, the incredible Audrey Hillman. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests, and reads, a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at VTEDReads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.